Welcome to Shelter, our new teaching series as we continue walking together through this unprecedented season of sheltering in place. You know, what we've seen in the last six weeks is beyond anything that any of us have experienced in our lifetimes. It seems like just yesterday that life was normal. The economy was humming. Baseball season was about to begin. But today we're past 50,000 deaths in America. The economy is crashing. We're all stuck at home and we don't know for how long. And some of our leaders are telling us it'll be worse this fall and winter. Maybe it feels to you like there's no escape. Maybe it feels like there's no way out. Maybe you're wondering what's next. Will we survive this? And the answer for us as Christ followers is yes. It may seem like everything in our world has changed, but at the deepest level of reality, nothing has changed. God has not changed. God is still on his throne. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We may not know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. Shelter is about finding true shelter in God. And each week, we'll be asking what God's word says to us about following Jesus in a time like this. Today, God has a gift for you called Psalm 91. It's a powerful promise of God's protection in a time of global pandemic. Maybe you're not familiar with it, but this Psalm has been precious to God's people for over 3,000 years now. Down through the centuries, again and again, God's people have come to Psalm 91 for comfort and and strength and peace. And it is so incredibly relevant. I mean, just look at it. Psalm 91 specifically mentions a deadly pestilence and plague that kills thousands of people. It, It talks about enemies, about violence, about death. But in the midst of all this chaos, Psalm 91 declares a rock solid hope of unshakable trust in God's shelter about where we can find it and how we can access it and how we can live in it. Uh, Psalm 91 talks to us about finding our only true shelter. Let's read all 16 verses of this beautiful psalm. It begins, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And this is the word of the Lord. 
There are three things that I want you to see in Psalm 91, and the first is God's promise of protection. We see this in the first four verses. Again, verse one says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Uh, The Hebrew word for dwell is yashab, and it means to sit or to settle yourself down. In other words, you make yourself at home and, and you get still. See, God promises us that when we dwell in his shelter, we can rest. And this says that the first thing God is telling you to do in a moment of crisis is you make yourself at home. You rest, you rest in God's presence. We see two different Hebrew names for God in verse one. Most high is Elyon. It means that God is the creator and owner of the universe who has the right to do anything he wants with whomever or whatever he wants. He is the most high God. And he is sovereign over nations and leaders and economies. He owns it all. He even owns you. You know, the Bible says you are not your own, that you are bought with a price by the most high God. That second name, Almighty, that's El Shaddai. He has all power. There is no one stronger. Friends, we serve a God of strength and grace. And this means that as you sit there, you can dwell in the shelter of El Yon. You can rest in the shadow of El Shaddai. That means that while this world is spinning out of control, you can actually relax, you can rest, you can, you can sit down and make yourself at home like a little child in her daddy's lap, held close in the strong arms of her Abba. This is a picture of intimacy, of closeness with God. It's his, his fatherly protection. Verse one also says we can rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And that image may not mean that much to us, but in the Bible, in the Bible, a shadow almost always means protection. You know, much of the Bible takes place in a desert where finding a shadow to escape the blazing sun often meant the difference between life and death. Think about this. The only way to walk in someone's shadow is to get right next to them. And so to be in God's shadow means you're drawing close to El Shaddai. You're sitting down in his shadow. You're under his protection. It's kind of like this photo of this lion cub with its mama. Isn't that awesome? How many of you know you don't have anything to fear in front of you when you know who's behind you? See, that's you. That's El Shaddai. You are protected by the lion of Judah. Verse two says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And notice the psalmist says, I will say. In other words, he declares into the chaos and confusion of a moment. He declares, God is my refuge and God is my fortress and God is whom I I trust. Now this is Hebrew poetry and it's it's full of colorful word pictures. That that word refuge is it's like a small shelter. And if you've ever been maybe in the Midwest or the South, you've seen a tornado cellar where, where families can hide when a storm comes. And then the psalmist also says, God is my fortress. Well, a fortress is huge. It's like a castle or a military stronghold. A, a fortress is something that protects against large-scale attacks. And what God is saying to you is, big or small, doesn't matter the size of the problem, I will protect you from the small stuff as well as the major attacks. I am your refuge and I am your fortress. You can trust me. You know, this coronavirus crisis has been revealing. I think it has shown where people have put their trust. And if you put your trust in the economy or the markets, then you're probably kind of in the fetal position right now. If you put your trust in government, 
you usually get let down, right? So I want to ask you, in a moment of crisis like this, who do you trust? In other words, who are you trusting? Because trust means that you believe that God is good even when your situation is not. You have confidence in his character even when chaos is all around you. As Christ followers, we don't trust in our own wisdom or strength. We trust in Jesus Christ. We don't trust in our government. We trust in God. And then notice the psalm says, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. If you're taking notes, you might want to underline those possessive personal pronouns, my, my, my. In other words, God wants you to make this personal. And we must get this into our souls. We must believe that our God is for us in this moment. Romans 8.28 tells us that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. In other words, right now today, friends, please listen to me. He can take even a global pandemic and bend it for your good, for his glory. And who knows? Maybe this will be the catalyst of the next great awakening because maybe people will open up and maybe we'll be humbled as a nation. Maybe we will realize that we must have, we need desperately the hand of God in our lives right now. And you know, God's people, we can pray for that to happen. If you keep going, verses three and four get very personal because God makes a specific promise to his people. Look at verse three, it says, surely, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, and from the deadly pestilence. Now, a fowler is someone who traps birds. This is referring to any enemy who attacks us. Pestilence means a deadly disease. I wonder if you know why this virus today is called the coronavirus. I'm gonna show you a picture. When scientists first looked at this virus under a microscope, they saw it had all these tiny little spikes all over, and they, they said it looks like a crown, the word corona is actually Latin for crown, and so they called it the coronavirus. It's, it's the virus with the crown. And right now, it kind of seems like it rules over everything. This pestilence is hijacking headlines, dominating all our discussions, disrupting daily life. But this is a time for us to reaffirm, friends, that Jesus Christ is the true king, not the coronavirus. There is no plague, no pandemic, no disease, not even death itself that can overrule the almighty sovereign king of the universe. And Jesus Christ, our God, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And there is no other name under heaven by which people are saved. If you haven't done this, do it today. Put King Jesus on the throne of your heart. Let his peace rule in your heart through faith because Christ is king, not coronavirus. You know, in this this text, this psalm, there's image after image after image that says God will protect you. And probably the most vivid image is in verse four. Look at it again, where it says, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you will find refuge. You know, the wings of God, this is actually a metaphor that's used fairly often in the Bible. And it evokes something that we've all seen a mother bird protecting her young by spreading her wings over them, protecting them from the rain, protecting them from the sun, protecting them from predators. And in this picture, there's, there's tenderness, but there's also strength. Sometimes in the Bible, God is actually likened to a mother eagle. And so in addition to those images, this, this image is conveying a third thing, which we're gonna get back to. The Bible often evokes this metaphor 
Uh, Psalm 36, 7 says, both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1 says, in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. Psalm 61, 4 says, I long to dwell in your tent forever and, and take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You see, over and over again, God is compared with a mother bird who protects her young with outstretched wings, protects from the elements, protects from danger, protects from predators. And it's interesting because almost all of the time, the Bible describes God as a king and a father. It's almost always masculine metaphors. But this occasional evoking of God as a mother bird reminds us to not ever think of God as remote and distant like some human fathers. You see, this is a God who will protect you. And if you have entered into a personal relationship with him, he promises to protect you. See, if we trust God, he will protect us. That's the claim. That's what this psalm is saying. But maybe you're asking, what does this mean in real life? And maybe especially right now, you're thinking, how do I understand this in this time of a pandemic? That's the second thing I want you to see understanding God's promise of protection. And this is the the middle part of the psalm, verses five through 13. In this section, it starts to describe God's protection. And and these statements that get made are incredibly sweeping. You may notice uh, that it says some, some things that just boggle the mind. It says, it seems to say that if you trust God, you won't experience violence. In verses five and six, the terror of night, the arrow that flies by day. Verse seven, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. That, that seems to be saying you'll never experience violence. It seems to say you won't experience disease. See verse six, it says, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, the plague that destroys at midday. Go down to verse 10. It says, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near you. So we have no harm, no disaster, no violence, no sickness. And then finally, it goes so far as to say in verses 11 and 12, you won't even stub your toe. Did you see that? Uh, It says the angels will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And it looks like that's what it's saying, right? I mean, did you think that when we read it earlier, you read it through? And the first reading seems to be saying, you know, if you just trust God, nothing really bad will ever happen to you. If you just trust God, your life will go smoothly. And if that's true, it also implies the opposite, that if your life is not going smoothly, you must not be trusting God. You must not be uh, faithful to him in some way. But here's the question. Is that how we should read this? Is that what this is saying? Is that how we're supposed to understand and and read this promise? You know, right away, uh, you should think of a couple reasons that that is not the case, that we shouldn't think that. I mean, anyone who's read the Bible carefully should realize that's not really what this psalm is saying. I'll give you a couple reasons. The first reason is the book of Job. You know, Job, you read the, the opening of this book, he was the most godly, the most righteous man of his day, but, but he immediately experiences a lot of these same things this psalm is talking about, disaster and violence, disease and pestilence. And a lot of the things it seems to say won't happen to you if you trust God, well, they happen to Job. 
And then you'll remember Job's friends come to see him and they definitely read it that way. They say, Job, you know, if you, if you trust God, he will not let bad things happen to you. And, and Job, bad things are happening to you. Therefore, you must not be trusting God. You must not be being faithful to God somewhere. And that's what they say. But you read all the way to the end of the book of Job and God shows up and he shows up in a storm and he looks down at Job's friends and what does he say to them? He says, you have not spoken truth about me. These guys say, if you trust God, bad things won't happen. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you're not trusting God. And God looks him right in the eye and he says, you have not spoken truth about me. See, if you ever read the book of Job, you realize you can't read Psalm 91 that way either. Otherwise, you're like Job's friends. Otherwise, if you read it that way, God will say to you, you're not thinking truth about me. The second reason that we shouldn't read Psalm 91 that way is because Satan wants you to read it that way. You ever heard that famous Shakespeare quote that says the devil can quote scripture for his purpose? Do you know in the Bible, there's one place where the devil actually does quote scripture. And the scripture the devil quotes is Psalm 91, right here. What does he do with it? Well, if you go to Luke chapter four, this is verses 10 and 11, you'll see Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness and he's trying to derail Jesus' ministry. And one of the ways he does it is he quotes Psalm 91, 11, which is like the most extreme statement in Psalm 91. He says, you know, if you just trust God, God will protect you. You won't even stub your foot. That's what he's saying to Jesus. And he quotes this to Jesus and he's just telling him, if, you are, if God lets you suffer, then he is not being true to his word. Look, Jesus, God promises. God promises that you will not suffer. So if you suffer, that means God cannot be trusted. You see, Satan is nothing if not strategic. Satan knows that if you believe that, that if you read Psalm 91 or any other text in the Bible like that, if you come to believe this, like, you know, if I really just trust God and if I'm really true to him, that means God is not gonna let anything bad happen to me. Satan knows what's going to happen next. Satan knows it means eventually you'll be deeply disappointed. Eventually it means you will pull back from God. You will never come to know the powerful promise that is here. And Satan doesn't want you to know that. See, the more you live, the more you live like that, you'll not only get more and more anxious, but you'll get more and more angry and bitter and it will totally derail your life. Satan is nothing if not strategic. And it's really interesting if you stop to think about it, there must be something so powerful that God wants you to know from Psalm 91 that the forces of darkness want you to misread it so you don't get it. Well, then how can we start reading it right? What does it mean that God protects us? To give us a better picture of this, a better idea, I'm gonna give you one biblical story and three biblical statements that will get us started toward reading Psalm 91's promise rightly. And probably the best biblical story to explain this is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Maybe you know the story. It starts with Jacob who had 12 sons, but Joseph is his favorite. 
Jacob, because of his own problems, because of the way his parents treated him, his own family history, he favors one son over all of the others. And he does this very visibly, very obviously. Joseph is the favorite over all of the brothers. And you know, some of you, what kind of poison that is in a family. When you see that happening as you read this story, you see Joseph, even by the time he's an adolescent, is becoming entitled. He's becoming spoiled and arrogant and cruel. You see that in his dreams. And his brothers are responding, becoming murderously bitter and angry and hard. As the story progresses, the brothers actually sell Joseph into slavery. He goes to Egypt and down in Egypt, it gets even worse because his master there falsely accuses him of attempted rape. He gets thrown into a dungeon. And so now he's not just a slave, but he's also a prisoner. And for years and years, everything goes wrong in his life. At every point where he could have cried out and said, God, help me, there would have just been silence. God never comes through. God never answers. And yet we all know that in the end, if that disaster hadn't happened, Joseph would never have become a great man. Joseph would never have escaped that self-absorbed person that he was becoming. And secondly, the brothers never would have been humbled and and healed psychologically. And then third, there were multitudes of of people, including his family, they would have starved. You see, Joseph was protected from being the wreck he was becoming. He was protected from his own arrogance. He was protected from his father's loving mistreatment of him. He was protected basically from his brother's. And his brothers were protected from themselves. The people were protected from starvation. And all of this protection was going on because of all this disaster that all happened under God's control, all as part of his plan. Now, here are the three statements. The first statement is actually at the end of Joseph's story, Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And then the second statement biblically is basically an elaboration of the first statement. It's Romans 8, 28, very famous verse, often quoted, but often misunderstood. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that little word, together, is so important. There is nothing trite or superficial about this promise, friends. This is not saying, you know, well, all these bad things are really good things. Every cloud has a silver lining. No, the Bible is clear. Bad things are bad things. God did not create a world with evil, violence, war, sickness, aging, and death. They're the result of our sin that has come into the world. That's what the Bible says. But when it says everything, even the terrible things, even the most terrible things work together for good, what that means is that even though those things are terrible, God is somehow bringing his power to bear on all things in such a way that we will see from the vantage point of eternity that every bad thing that happened in the end brought about something better and more glorious than would have happened if the bad thing hadn't happened. In other words, the bad thing brings about something better than if it hadn't happened, which means that all the evil intention of evildoers will one day be utterly thwarted. Evil will be absolutely defeated. 
if it's really true, and it is, that every bad thing that happens in the end only leads to something more glorious and more great than if it hadn't happened. Now, the third statement, which I think is actually the most important statement to help us understand how to read Psalm 91 correctly is, is Luke 21, 16 to 19. It's nowhere near as well known as the other passages I read to you, but it's Jesus' own statement, Jesus' own words. Listen very carefully. Uh, Jesus was, was talking to his disciples about the trials that he would face. And he, he says to them, you're gonna be persecuted after I'm gone. Many bad things are gonna happen to you. I want you to listen carefully to what he says. Verse 16, beginning there. He says, even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. Did you hear that? Listen carefully to what Jesus is saying to you. He says, your parents and your brothers and your family and your friends, they'll betray you. They'll kill some of you, but not a hair of your head will perish. And you're like, what? Wait, what? Jesus says, some of you will be betrayed. Everyone's gonna hate you. In fact, some of you will actually be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, if you read that and pay attention, you have to ask, what? in the world could that mean? And then he says, notice, by standing firm, you will win your souls. What is he saying? Well, I actually think this is the clearest expression of all, and we've already gotten close to it. We've moved toward the reality of this truth in Joseph, that Joseph needed to be protected from a whole lot of things that would destroy him forever, and so did his brothers, and so did everybody. You see, the hair on their heads, spiritually speaking, you might say, in the ultimate sense, the, the only way they could ever really be protected was by these other things coming into their lives. And so when Jesus says, bad things will happen to you, but not a hair of your head will perish, and then he adds, which is very helpful, and by standing firm, you will win. This Greek word could also be translated possess. You will possess your souls. We get the key right there. Here's what it's saying. If you love anything more than God, if there's anything in your life that gives you meaning in life more than him and his love, I mean, you can believe in God and go to church. You can be a good person. You can believe the doctrines of Christianity. But, but if there's anything in your life that's more important to you than God, then you don't possess your own soul. Then that thing has the title to your soul. That thing owns you. Maybe it's a career. And you know, you should care about your job. Your career matters. But, but if it's the most important thing to you, if it is the thing that really gives you meaning and, and self-worth in life, much more than your relationship with God, then your career owns you. If it's your family, if it's your financial security, same thing. See, you don't possess your own soul. It possesses you and it will drive you. And I'm just telling you, you will be anxious. You will be up and down all the time. There will be no rest in your life, no peace in your life. You see, it's only, it's only when something bad happens to your career or your family or, or your finances and then you take shelter under his wings. See, what does that mean? How do you do that? Well, what it means 
is when that happens and you shelter in God, as you reinvest in God, that which you have been investing in this thing you're losing now because these bad things are happening. And as you do that, you become somebody else. In the true sense, you become yourself. And that's what it means when you possess your soul by standing firm. The Greek word translated standing firm means long suffering or endurance. And Jesus is saying in suffering, if you rest in me and if you trust in me, then when those bad things happen, you will become a person who finally, in a sense, is is self-possessed. What that means is you're not scared. You're not up and down. You're You're living with peace. You're becoming a person not only with peace, but a person of peace. Look at Joseph again. He he would have never become a person of character. He needed to be protected from his own self-absorption. And here's what that means. If you read Psalm 91 in a superficial way and you, you begin saying, well, this means no bad thing will ever happen to me. Here's what you're actually saying. You're saying, well, Psalm 91 is telling me that all the things that I love more than God, that though I don't know them, that they're actually possessing my soul and they're actually making me a somebody who will never be able to handle hardship, never be able to handle trouble, never be able to handle the, the dangers of life. I'll just be torn apart all the time. I'll be whipsawed back and forth between anxiety and pride. You know, my head will get inflated when my career is going well and I'll be destroyed when it's not going well. I will never, ever be a person of peace if I hold on to these things. You see, you can't read Psalm 91 as saying, God is gonna just let me keep all the things I love more than him because that would be the worst thing for you. Instead, you have to recognize what Psalm 91 is really saying. I will protect you. I will protect the real you. I will protect the you that's gonna last forever. I will protect the only part of you that really matters. The truth is, friend, God is telling you there's so many other parts of you, just like for me, that they really need to be pushed out of our lives anyway, right? Well, what does God's promise of protection mean? It means that you must trust God in trouble in order to become a person who can handle trouble. Not trust that God will prevent trouble or make you exempt from trouble because that would be the worst possible thing for you. We know as we look at Joseph's story, that would have been the case for him. And maybe you hear that and you say, okay, I get that. I understand, but that's hard. How do I trust God in trouble? How do I actually live that out? And that's the third thing that I want you to see. It's living under God's promise a protection. And we see this in the last three verses, verses 14 through 16. In these verses, you may notice the change of the voice. God here is speaking very directly to the reader. And it shows us as we read it that what we've been seeing is right. It shows us also how to get the power to trust him when troubles happen. Notice what it says in verse 15. I will be with him in trouble. It does not say, I will be with him, the one who trusts in me, and prevent trouble from happening. If you read the rest of the psalm wrongly, incorrectly, then you would get to this verse, verse 15, and you would say, what's going on here? What is that doing here? Because I thought it said, I will protect you from trouble. But no, that's not what it says. Look at it again. Verse 15 says, I will protect you in trouble. I will be with you in trouble. And you know, really, that should be enough 
to show that what we've been talking about is correct, that we need to read Psalm 91 in line with the rest of what the Bible says to understand it properly. See, there it says, I will be with him in trouble. But here's what's really great about that line, because this line points forward to the entire rest of the Bible. It points forward to the New Testament. It points forward to the gospel. It points forward to Jesus. You say, how? Well, think about it. When you're reading Psalm 91, it seems to say, I will be with him in trouble. But what does that mean? And, and maybe you first kind of think, well, that just means I'll feel God's presence in trouble. But here's the good news, friend. God went a lot further than that. Do you know the links to which God has gone to literally be with us in trouble? See, we don't know what that means until we get to the story of Jesus. And there we are told something about God that no other religion says. No other religion makes this claim. It is only Christianity that makes the claim that the transcendent God and creator who was exempt from trouble, who was perfect, who was all powerful. I mean, how could he ever experience trouble? Well, he became a human being. He was born in a manger. He became a person who lived and experienced betrayal and injustice who experienced unimaginable physical pain, who even experienced death. The invulnerable God became vulnerable. The immortal God became mortal. The invulnerable God became killable. He went to the cross. You see, friends, this is the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation. When he says, I will be with you in trouble, that's the first thing you need to use on your heart whenever bad things are happening to you. You say, what does it mean to take shelter under his wings? What does it mean to really rest in him? I mean, how do you do that? When, when bad things are happening and you're asking, why is this happening to me? The first thing that you can say to your God is, is you can look up and you can say, God, you know what I'm going through. And that is the first thing you need in order to really rest in him. God, you know what I'm going through. You've experienced worse than I've ever experienced. And that is so important. But this doesn't just point <laughs> to the incarnation. It points to the doctrine of substitution. You say, how so? Well, think about it. It, it talks in this Psalm about rescue. It, it talks about salvation. It talks about grace salvation, but it's not really until the New Testament that we begin to understand what that means. Maybe you remember earlier in the message, I told you this metaphor of a mother bird conveys three ideas. And I, I mentioned how it conveys protection and how it conveys tender love. But here's the third thing I didn't mention. It also conveys substitution. Think about it. The mother bird is spreading over her young, her wings, to protect the young from the rain. Well, how does she protect the young from the rain? Well, she gets wet. How does she protect the young from the heat of the sun? She gets hot. How does she protect them from the predators? Well, she gets eaten. She puts herself between the bad and her young. She takes it herself. You know, there's only one time, only one time when Jesus Christ identifies with a mother bird. It's toward the end of his life and his ministry when he's riding into Jerusalem it's in Matthew 23. It's also, you can read about it in Luke 13. And 
he's talking about judgment there. He's, he's talking about the fact that the people of Jerusalem are going to be judged for their sins, that judgment is coming down. And as he's talking about judgment, that's where he says it. Here it is, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing and I think some of us read that and think, oh, that's so sweet, Jesus. He's identifying as a mother hen. He's so nice. He would like his little chicks to be under his wings. But the context matters here. What is he talking about? He's talking about judgment. Judgment is coming down. And in this context, he is saying, oh, if you believed in me, I would be your mother bird and you would take shelter under my wings. Well, shelter from what? Judgment. That means the judgment will fall on him. That's how he protects us. True story. A number of years ago, there were some terrible fires in Yellowstone Park. Maybe you remember reading about them, hearing about them. And after it was over, National Geographic ran an interesting article. And it, it talked about park rangers who went into the park checking for the hot spots that were there after the fire had died down. And two rangers were walking along and they saw this tree that was just a charred stump. And they saw at the base of the tree, this very, very creepy, macabre kind of sight. It, it was a mother bird still sitting upright in her nest, but she had been completely charred. She was basically ash, but she was still sitting upright. One of the park rangers took a stick and knocked the bird over. And when he did, three little live chicks ran out from underneath. Those rangers realized the reason those chicks had lived was when the heat came, the mother did her thing. She just sat there and she let the fire come down on her. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, he looked down at people betraying him. He looked down at people denying him, at people abandoning him, at people mocking him and jeering at him. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, he stayed and he was burned to ash by the judgment of God, by the fire and the wrath of God. Jesus took what we deserve. That's what the Bible says. And right there, Right there is the answer to understanding Psalm 91. If you read Psalm 91 and you say, well, you know, if you trust in God, God's, God's never gonna let anything bad happen to you. Think about it, friend, think about it. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever completely trusted in God, the only human being who ever fully trusted in God. Did anything bad happen to him? Yes. Why? Well, because through that, God brought redemption God brought joy. God brought glory. You see, here's how that you can rest under the shadow of his wings. When bad things happen to you, it is always a way for you to possess your soul, to take your heart's overinvestment in these other things and then put that into God. And the way to do that is not just to do it in some abstract way, not by just saying, oh yeah, I need to love God. The way to do that is to look at what Jesus Christ did. 
to look at him taking the judgment, to look at him being burned to ash so we could be saved, so we could live. And then you say, Lord Jesus, if you suffered for us like that, then I can suffer right now with endurance. And by standing firm, you will find yourself. You will become yourself. You will possess your soul. Will you join me as we pray together? Bow your heads, please, where you are. Thank you, Father, for giving us this glorious promise of protection. A promise is so easy for us to misread. And Lord, we see how Satan wants us to misread us. He, he doesn't want us to enter into the remarkable gift that you've offered to us, this remarkable peace that you give to us here. Lord, we ask that you would help us to look at our lives with truth, with your wisdom. And Lord, please give us the ability to shelter in the shadow of your wings. Lord, in this time that is so confusing, so chaotic, Lord, we don't know where to turn. We don't know what to think. Would you help us to put our hearts at rest? And Lord, we see that we can do this because we know that your son died for us. Because he died for us, because you have raised him from the dead, Father, we know that we have your love and we have your power. And Lord, that's all in the end that we need. We thank you for this, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people everywhere as you listen to this say, amen, amen. I wanna thank you again for joining us today. And I'm praying God's richest blessings on you. I'm praying for God's peace to be with you, especially during this week that's ahead. Have a great week in the Lord. We'll see you next Sunday.